Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. Well, while ordinary people were privately showing gratitude to their mothers on Mother's Day yesterday, politicians were eager to make the day a political event, dedicating posts on social media to quote, all the mums out there. This would be a fine sentiment if some of these politicians weren't at other times trying to undermine the role mothers have played in our society for millennia. Victorian Premier Dan Andrews posted a photo of himself interacting with his own mother and promising to visit her one day, while also saying, quote, nobody has your back like your mum. Well, this is true. Mothers are fiercely protective of their kids. That's what they do. But if a Victorian mother wants to protect her kids from the transgender industry, psychologically, medically, and surgically altering the gender of one of her kids, then Dan Andrews is going to step in. It's one thing for him to say, nobody has your back like your mum, but if a mum tries to prevent transgender professionals getting their hooks into one of her kids, she is potentially guilty of laws Dan's government passed in 2021. He has also passed laws allowing school teachers to socially transition a child, that's a euphemism for preparing a child to undergo permanent and often regrettable medical and surgical procedures without telling the, children, the child's mother. So perhaps Andrews should have added a caveat to his Mother's Day post, excluding mothers who want to protect their kids from gender ideologues. Andrews's opposition counterpart, John Pesuto, was also keen to jump aboard the Mother's Day bandwagon, posting a video of himself at an annual event in his electorate and also wishing, quote, happy Mother's Day to all the mums out there. Well, all the mums, except former Liberal Member of Parliament, Moira Deeming, that is. Deeming was kicked out of the Parliamentary Liberal Party on Friday for a series of disagreements that began with her attending and speaking at an event to defend women's rights on March 18. Again, that's what good mothers do. They protect and nurture. On this occasion, it was to protect women, especially young girls, from men who think they're women invading their spaces, such as bathrooms, change rooms, and prisons. A group of pathetic neo-Nazis crashed the event and Pesuto insinuated that Deeming 
had brought the party into disrepute by associating with Nazi sympathisers. On the contrary, she stood up for fundamental liberal values, freedom of association, freedom of speech, and the defence of the family. These were once blue ribbon values in the party that Pesuto now supposedly leads. We can see the consequences of the destruction of the family everywhere. Daniel Penny is the US Marine who put a violent, psychotic homeless man into a sleeper hold on the New York subway on May 1, accidentally killing him. Penny has now been charged with manslaughter because the case fits neatly into the leftist playbook of inherent racism in the United States. This is, of course, political and, and media misinformation. What isn't misinformation, but which isn't being discussed by politicians or the media, is that the breakdown of the family, not racism, was the defining factor in this tragedy. The victim, 30-year-old Jordan Neely, was best known for performing Michael Jackson video dances on the New York subway. And he was very good at it. But the reason he became such a Michael Jackson fanatic is a key part of his tragic trajectory. Neely lived with his mother in New Jersey. 16 years ago, when Neely was 14, his mother's boyfriend murdered her. He stuffed her body in a box and dumped it in the Bronx. Jordan was 14. He was a witness at the boyfriend's trial five years later and said their relationship, that's the relationship between his mum and the boyfriend, had been, quote, crazy, and they fought every day. The New York Times reported that, quote, perhaps to deflect from talking about the painful experience, he leaned into his childhood love of Michael Jackson, which by then had grown into a fine imitation. Everyone at his high school called him Michael Jackson. But that obsession and popular talent was never going to be a substitute for a loving family, and Jordan quickly descended into a hell of drugs, homelessness, petty crime, violence, psychosis, and occasional but unsuccessful rehabilitation. In other words, his deeply dysfunctional family circumstances kicked off a series of events that almost perfectly predicted how poor Jordan Neely would die. And yet the media and the American political establishment would like you to believe that it's because of racism. An equally destructive subtext is that it is no longer safe for good people to intervene when psychotic people are threatening others in public. Because if the event can be twisted to suit the leftist narrative, you will, like the heroic Daniel Penny, be the one charged and vilified. The reassuring part of all this is that the defense of free speech and common sense is bringing together people from across society. If ever there was proof that an issue is fundamental, it is when people who normally oppose each other join forces to defend it. And that is exactly the case with my next guest, Holly Lawford-Smith, 
who also attended the women's rights event in Melbourne on March 18. Lawford Smith is Associate Professor in Political Philosophy at Melbourne University with particular interest in radical feminism and gender critical feminism. Her defence of women's rights against men who think they are women has led to her also being vilified and ostracised on campus by both students and faculty. After she spoke at the rally on March 18 alongside former Liberal MP Moira Deeming, posters appeared around campus calling her, of all things, a transphobic fascist and bigot and advising students not to attend her lectures. Last week, she lodged a formal complaint against the university for failing to provide a safe workplace. And I'm pleased to say she joins me now. Holly, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Firstly, Holly, tell the viewers a bit about yourself. What got you into feminist academia? Oh, I mean, I actually got sucked in by watching uh, a similar kind of backlash that has been going on in the last month or so against a philosopher in the UK. So that's Kathleen Stock, uh, who had started writing uh, on gender critical issues over there, just kind of in a, in a blog post, um, and had just attracted this incredible, angry reaction from the philosophy profession and further um, so, of course, that piqued my curiosity <laughs> and I started looking into the issues and I, yeah, I just got intrigued and kind of fell down the rabbit hole and I've been doing it since then. Well, that's an interesting entry into your field of academia because most people get into it because they agree with what's already happening. You, it sounds like you got into it because you were concerned about the direction it was heading in. Is that a, right, is that a good way of summarising it? I think that's right. So philosophy really stands for certain values, you know, so pursuit of truth, open inquiry, charitable construction of your opponent's arguments, really like having the debate in this kind of rational way. Uh, and I didn't know that much about feminist philosophy. I was working in political and moral philosophy uh, on topics like climate ethics and collective action. I just hadn't really paid much attention to, to feminist topics. So it was more just like, seeing that this reaction to what Kathleen was saying was just so anti-philosophical, uh, really like the wrong, yeah, a violation of our disciplinary norms, just kind of shocking. And of course, yeah, that just made me interested. What's the stuff we're not allowed to talk about? Uh, let's find out more about that. And let's uh, kind of sort of be another person joining her in this discussion. So we will get to your latest cancellation in a minute. But tell me, when was the first time you were cancelled? Oh, I think that was early 2019. Um, and that was actually kind of a, 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 looking back on that, I think I was very lucky um, because I just heard about it after the fact. So I'd given this interview with Richard Marshall for 3AM magazine. Most of it was just about my political philosophy work. And then at the end, he asked me a few questions about trans issues. I answered them. The article went up. And then what I heard was, uh, Inside the magazine, there had been an attempt to get the article taken down, and then Marshall had quit in protest rather than capitulate to allowing the article to be taken down. So all I heard was, like, this editor had really stood up for me, held his ground, and that was going to be amazing if you consider the sequence that would follow, which was a lot of people being really cowardly. But he was the first one, and he, he, he stood his ground, which I think is really cool. 
Well, you're highly regarded in the field now, being published by Oxford University Press, and you're a regular commentator on Quillette and the Philosopher's Magazine, which is based in the United States. Did you ever think your opinions would one day be seen as not radical enough? Not radical enough? Um, I'm not sure what... I'm not sure what that means. Can, yeah, can you say a bit more? Well, you are being targeted by radical uh, proponents of gender critical theory. So in, your, in their eyes, you're not radical enough. That's what I'm trying to say. Or uh, do you, would you disagree with that statement? Maybe the thing to say is that it's a different kind of radicalism. <laughs> so there's a, there's a sort of divergence or a fight uh, against the orthodoxy or the mainstream and I think maybe the like minority viewpoint or the sort of like people who thought of themselves as progressives they got comfortable thinking they were the only ones so in the second wave as feminists that was the ones that thought like oh there's a sex gender distinction and not every female has to be feminine and not every male has to be masculine that was the fight but I think now it's like really diverged so you've got your sex as a social construction team following people like Judith Butler and then you've got your gender critical feminists who are like hey let's not actually throw out sex and sex difference let's have a sensible discussion about sex-based rights and feminism and how to like advance women's situation without just being social constructionists about absolutely everything so it's more like there's two groups of radicals now fighting it out for radical supremacy <laughs> if yeah. that makes sense yeah and you're in the camp defending the, uh, the biological difference between men and women. It brings, yeah, you, brings right. you into alliance with all sorts of people, doesn't it? Well, it does, but then I guess there's this interesting question about exactly like where the line is between what we as gender critical feminists consider to be uh, biological and what we consider to be cultural or sort of socialised. Um, so I think we would probably end up having big disagreements with some of the traditionalists about sex or the people who think that sex just is gender. There's a big fight there. The thing that really distinguishes us from the other radicals uh, is that we, we believe in sex. There's a question about how much that means, right? Does it just mean female and male, these ones get pregnant, these ones don't? Or does it mean like innately disposed toward being more nurturing and compassionate and taking the carer jobs? All of that is up for discussion. Um, the disagreement, I think, is really over, like, is there such thing as sex? And should we keep basing our feminism on and around it? Well, I like the way you frame it. All of that is up for discussion, unless, except not according to the people who oppose you, who want to cancel you. I mean, let's talk about right. your complaint against the university now. It's mostly about the anonymous campaign, calling you a fascist and a bigot. Uh, I've, we've mm -hmm. only just met, but I, could prob I can safely say that you're neither of those things. <laughs> And it calls, for a <laughs> it calls for a boycott of your classes. Now, mm -hmm. how does it, what's it like to be a lecturer at a university where the discussion, the contest of ideas is meant to be open and intense and the best idea wins? What's it like to be a lecturer or an academic at a university where that is no longer acceptable? Yeah, I mean, there is a sense in which this um, disagreement is happening like in parallel to my teaching rather than inside my teaching. My students are great. 
And we are proceeding as normal, having all the kinds of difficult and challenging discussions that, that, that we have always had. These are people outside of philosophy who don't like know anything about or respect the norms of philosophy, who have a very militant idea about what feminism should be like or, you know, what that they think that they are kind of in possession of the absolute truth somehow at age 22. They're the ones that are trying to shut things down, right? Um, that they're the ones kind of making these extremist demands that other students boycott my class because someone who thinks feminism is for females is not fit to teach feminism, right? But there's a sense in which these are just like ludicrous demands coming from ludicrous activists. So where, um, but where are they, they coming actually, from, Holly? If they're not in the faculty, in the philosophy department, where are they coming from? Well, I suspect some of them aren't even part of the university. Uh, mm. uh, and uh, so that's part of it. And the others are coming from gender studies. So the articles in The Age at the weekend interviewed at least one person who claims not to have been involved in this current poster campaign, but has been involved in making complaints against me and my teaching in the past. And that person was identified as being a gender studies student. And I think there's associations with people in the kind of Pride in Action Network and the um, uh, University of Melbourne Queer Students Association. And again, these are just people who subscribe to this particular ideology about sex being a social construction and anyone being whatever they want to self-determine or self-identify as being. And I just disagree with that. Well, let me quote from, uh, it might be the same student, a trans student was quoted in The Age on the weekend saying, here's the quote, Dr. Lawford Smith fundamentally doesn't believe in hearing out trans people in considering their safety or having them in public life. Now, Holly, would you agree with that statement? <laughs> Absolutely not. And also, I just think it's wild. Like, I know that the newspaper had to get a range of viewpoints, but it's wild that a student can just invent claims that are absolute lies and for which there is no evidence and then have those claims kind of disseminated in the public sphere. I mean, where is the evidence? that I don't want trans people to exist in the public, in public life. Where is the evidence I don't care about their safety? I mean, these are all just, I think, fantasies and projections. And I wish people would stop projecting them onto me. <laughs> Can I just clarify a, uh, a, 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 def a definition and term here? Where do you stand on the difference between sex and gender? I think there is a difference. So I subscribe to the second wave feminist type view, which is that there's a difference between woman kind of as she really is, that's her sex, she's female, and then like woman as she has been made to be by society and culture over a long period of time. Um, and I think we call that thing gender, we call that thing femininity. Some people use woman as a success term for that. So they say, you know, she's born female, but she becomes a woman. She's made into a woman. So I think it's useful to be able to distinguish those two things because then we can ask about how much our cultural practices are really channeling girls and boys into these different sorts of like behaviors and occupational preferences and so on. But again, like I said earlier, it's kind of an, it's an empirical question, right? Like, and we need to do the experiments and, and find out like how much of that really is kind of innate sex difference and how much is uh, socialized and we should do our socializing differently. Well, empirical and compelling, I'd say, as long as you don't deny the, the biological reality, then 
Yeah, the, social, the, the socialization of the different genders is actually a fascinating topic. Now, one of the other, one of the other fascinating aspects of this is that, is that you are, well, there are elements on campus trying to cancel you and Moira Deeming has uh, successfully been, uh, if I can use this word, cancelled by her own parliamentary party over right. the same topic. Now, I mean, th this is the alliance I was referring to earlier. You and Moira Deeming side by side in the same fight. It's, these are uh, fascinating alliances, aren't they? Well, I mean, I think that's one thing that's really cool about gender critical feminism. It has, it, it's nonpartisan, right? I think a lot of leftists are angry that it's not exclusively left and they make the mistake of thinking that means it's the far right, but it's not, it's nonpartisan. So it's bringing, there's loads of left-wing women, but there are also loads of like politically disenfranchised women who feel like no left-wing party anymore speaks for them. And then there are women that are centrists and religious and more conservative on economic matters, whatever. Like we have, we have all the women. Like what yeah. a great feminist movement. <laughs> I mean, that's how it should be. Very, very well put. <laughs> well, speaking of which, do you ever, do you ever speak to Moira? Do you to give each other moral support? Yeah, we do. We, I would say we're friends. We, we know each other and we've been in touch about what's been going on and yeah, kind of watching incredulously this fallout since the Let Women Speak event. I yeah. think Moira is great. Really respect her. Um, yeah. What's it like to be on the receiving end of this kind of treatment, Holly? I think it's shocking. I mean, I mean that epistemically, like it's hard to get your head around the absurdity of the current situation, right? Like from the sort of Sunday after the Let Women Speak event, seeing the news reports come out, just lie after lie after lie. Oh, the anti-trans event supported by Nazis. And then that somehow morphs over time. There was a tweet today by a member of the NTEU just saying, a member of the Unimob staff went to a Nazi rally. So this just kind of gets like more and more exaggerated and ridiculous as the days go on. So sort of watching that happen, watching these people in politics who are supposed to be like have integrity and be responsible, like the leader of the liberals, just again, outright lie, rely on Wikipedia, just like, I think get like personally offended and puffed up and then dismiss Moira out of some kind of bizarre, what, hurt pride or something i don't know like the, the whole thing is just preposterous like it's really <laughs> preposterous it's been such a surreal time well you'd think that you know for support you could rely on of all things your university let's just bring the conversation back to that what's your opinion about the state of academia at the moment well, I find it hard to comment in general because, um, you know, they did do a big free speech audit on campus some years ago. Um, and, you know, there were some things that could be improved, but in general, the thought was like, we didn't really have a free speech problem on campus. And I guess I'm inclined to think that might still be true. It's just that there are certain issues that are so hot that there's a problem for those. So I'm sure no one on campus really wants to speak freely about the voice, for example, at the moment, and doesn't feel like they're able to because they're not in the relevant group. And, and certainly trans is one of those topics. So, but there's a sense in which I might just be unlucky because I'm in one of the few areas where you really can't have a constructive conversation, but the rest of the university is fine. But your career on campus as an academic relies on you conforming to certain 
uh, ideological ideas, isn't that right? I mean, again, it depends. I do know people who are gender critical in secret and they're fearful that if they were to sort of come out, they would like lose grant funding opportunities and that would compromise their ability to, you know, continue their career in the way they have. So I'm not saying that there's not a sort of chilling effect on speech on this topic. I guess I'm just not confident in pronouncing that like, there's a problem for universities. It might just be like 95% of the stuff is fine, but I'd have to know more about different disciplines, right? What their orthodoxies are, what you're not allowed to say. Um, yeah, maybe it's time for another free speech audit just well, to check, right? Yeah, what I was just going to say, I mean, what, how would you rate the state of free speech on your campus? Can you, can you give it a score out of 10? Again, I just don't know enough about all the disciplines. I do mm. know that I've heard from students taking some gender studies subjects who say that it feels more like indoctrination than critical thinking. I would be shocked if any philosophy student thought that. And I, I do suspect that gender studies is a bit of an outlier relative to the other humanities and arts disciplines. And certainly the sciences and law and so on are not going to be like that, I hope. Like, again, I just don't know. Um, and it would be great if people would... Um, because you can do practices like that yourself. In my feminism course, at the end of the semester, I always do a kind of Qualtrics survey, asking them, how free did you feel to express like dissenting viewpoints? Were you scared of your peers doing something crazy, outing you? Were you scared of me? You know, lecturers could do that themselves just to make sure that they have the right kind of uh, environment. But I don't know how many do. Well, Holly, having seen some examples of the uh, resistance that is being posted about you on campus, uh, I can imagine you feel under somewhat isolated at, at times and under um, extreme pressure. And uh, you, are, you seem to be handling it with uh, enormous uh, optimism and good humor. So good on you and thank you so much for your time. Thanks. That's Holly Lawford-Smith. Uh, she's the Associate Professor of Political Philosophy at Melbourne University, and she's bravely and almost single-handedly standing up for free speech at her campus. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at, at Fred Paul, that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, or follow ADH on at A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. And you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, including Mark Stein, Alan Jones, Damian Khoury, Lyle Shelton, Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, and more by going to adh.tv or downloading our app to your television or phone. Or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary. And there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at 7 p.m. Good night.